How and why has Korean pop or K-pop gone global over the last 10 years? Whatever is happening in the rest of the world, K-pop is keeping its eyes and ears open and seeing what's going on, taking those influences and then putting their own spin on it. With K-pop artists topping charts and selling out tours internationally, the genre has far more fans than ever. But for the uninitiated, it can seem like an unfamiliar world. In part, this is because K-pop is about much more than music. It's also about drilled choreography, immersive aesthetics, performer personalities and the fans. It's a culture with its own rules. Sonically, K-pop has so much going on. Within artist catalogues or even within single songs, you can hear the influence of so many different genres, from hip-hop to trap to funk to indie to EDM to Latin beats. And that could just be one track. So if you're new to the genre, like I am, there's a lot to unpack, which is why I need an expert to help me. I'm Alexis French, and this is Start Here, a podcast brought to you by the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. In this series, I'm on a journey through genre, and in this episode, I'm joined by Vivian Yoon to help guide me on my journey through K-pop. Vivian is a Korean-American writer-performer from Los Angeles and the host of the amazing podcast K-Pop Dreaming, where she tracks the rise in history of the genre as told from the point of view of the Korean diaspora in LA. Thank you for joining me, Vivian. How are you? I'm doing so well. How are you? I'm really, really good. It's so good to be in your company today. I've been really looking forward to to getting into this. I'm so enjoying your podcast and, and your writing and super excited to talk to you. And as is always the case with Start Here, I always ask my guest to tell me why I should listen to their particular genre of music. So Vivian, why should I listen to K-pop? What is your best elevator pitch? Okay. So first of all, if you live in a modern country, right, in the Western or Eastern world, you've already heard K-pop in your daily life. Like you have heard it in the mall, playing on TV, on TikTok. You might not have been aware it was K-pop, but you probably heard it and enjoyed it already. So that's point number one. But overall, if you enjoy pop music and you like fun, mood boosting, pure entertainment where you can watch stunning young people just like sing and dance at a really high level, you're going to love K-pop. Oof, I'm sold. So can you help us then define the sound of K-pop? What is it? What are the component parts? What's the DNA? What musical element should we be looking out for? Yeah, so I think just like a lot of different types of pop music, K-pop songs usually have this upbeat, very danceable tempo with catchy melodies and lyrics, which, you know, they could be sung in Korean. It could be a combination of Korean and English. Sometimes now it's just in English, which sort of makes things more complicated. But there's a lot of emphasis on the visuals in K-pop too, right? Where like each song or group has something called a concept, which is like some kind of visual theme that influences everything from the costumes and the makeup to the choreo to the music video. And every song is also going to have something called point choreo, which is like super catchy dance moves that are specifically paired to like the most catchy part of the song, the hook or the chorus. 
Right. Where does it go in terms of hierarchical order? So the music is always on point from what I can hear. But what you're saying is the choreography and the production, they're all on par, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think this is really good to talk about because K-pop is sort of different from, let's say, American pop music or British pop music, because the term K-pop actually refers to this entire like industry and business and system that is being exported out of South Korea, um, where, you know, you have these quote unquote idol groups and artists that are specifically like trained, created, and then managed by giant entertainment companies. So it's this entire system that K-pop is referring to, not just the music. Not just the music. And I've seen a little bit of that on TV. I, I think I watched the Blackpink documentary. I think it was on Netflix. And I've got to say it was so, it was fascinating where you see this machinery behind this group and everything is just choreographed, not just the actual dancing, but the support system. Everything is choreographed so meticulously. The production team, everyone managing the the band, the artists, their lives and the PR. And I, I find it that that kind of notion of it being managed by this machine I think is quite alien, certainly is alien to me and might be alien to a lot of people as well. How did that start? Yeah, I think a good comparison or a place to start from is if you think about the Backstreet Boys, Yeah, the way they were sort of created was this guy, Lou Pearlman. He decides like, I want to create the new kids on the block, but they sound like boys to men. And so he puts out this flyer or an ad in the newspaper looking to like audition teen boys to see like who can dance and sing. And, you know, maybe he can try to form a group together. So that's exactly what he does. And that's how the Backstreet Boys are formed. And then Lou Pearlman goes on to then like manage their entire look and their sound and their career. That's essentially how it started in Korea, too, except it was a Korean person named Lee Soo-man, who is still like the head of one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world, SM Entertainment. But it essentially started the same way, where he studied at Cal State Northridge for a while, and then he was blown away by the stuff he was seeing on MTV with Michael Jackson and Madonna, and he was like... I want to come up with a new Michael Jackson meets like Bobby Brown, where you have like a singer with backup dancers. And so he went to Korea and he started looking around at these underground hip hop clubs to see who fit the bill. And then he sort of took that concept and married it with the trainee system, which is something that was from Japan. And yeah, he created the world's first K-pop idol group, H.O.T., which stands for High Five of Teenagers. And it was this group of like really cute boys who could sing and dance. And he just like hit the payload with them. And from there, he created the first girl group. And then other entertainment companies started popping up and taking his formula and creating more and more groups until now you have K-pop as this like giant juggernaut machine. Amazing, amazing stuff. So let's return to the music because... I think it's easy to forget with such a successful commodity as K-pop is that it's still about the music, right? Because, you know, there is so much that surrounds it. And musically, that the sound has changed, I presume, a lot over the last 15 years or so. And could you tell us how has it changed and what you think is next for K-pop? Hmm, that's a really good question. K-pop has sort of evolved alongside pop music everywhere, Mm. right? The thing with K-pop is it's constantly drawing references from other types of music from the beginning. Mm. There was such a foundation in like 
R&B, hip hop, soul elements that they brought over and just put like a Korean twist on it to make it suitable for Korean listeners. And I feel that that's sort of been the trend with K-pop for years, this entire time, where whatever is happening in the rest of the world, K-pop, the industry is keeping its eyes and ears open and seeing what's going on, taking those influences and then putting their own spin on it. Um, the one thing that has been consistent is something called bong, which is this sort of elusive musical element that a lot of songwriters and producers will talk about when they're talking about composing for K-pop. Oh, we got to get into that, Vivian. What's that called again? Oh, yeah. So it's called bong. And bong is derived from this Korean word bongchak which is another way of saying trot. Right. And trot was this musical genre that popped up in Korea in the 1930s during the Japanese occupation. Okay, and a lot of people consider trot to have been sort of the Korean blues in a way because it came from this time of massive oppression and the lyrics and melodies are all like achy and painful and pining and there's a sense of longing mm. um, that mm. comes through in the music. And over time, as the genre evolved, the elements of that music started seeping into Korean pop music. And now it's like the musical element that a lot of people point to when you ask, like, what makes K-pop different from American pop music? That's the bullseye, Vivian, right there. <laughs> so you were just about to, and I stopped you in your tracks there, but so Boong, that's the, that's the genesis of it all, right? It's the secret sauce, I would say. The secret sauce. It's the secret sauce. It's that elusive element. It's that thing where if you try to identify like, oh, why does this one singer have so much soul and this other singer doesn't? It's sort of hard to explain, right? It's sort of hard to nail down, but it's just a feeling. Bong is kind of similar in that it's like very much a vibe. But one way I've seen it explained is you know how in country music, the lyrics will often have themes of heartbreak or pain, and there's like an achiness to yes. the lyrics and the chords and the melodies. So Bong takes that kind of achiness, uh -huh. the pining lyrics and dreamy chords and melodies, and then it combines it with this fast, upbeat dance tempo, this happy sound and feeling. And so it's this combination of happy and sad yeah. that creates this overall vibe that makes K-pop songs sound a little bit more complex and have a sort of dreamy quality that other pop songs might not. Oh, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I have no idea what Bong sounds like in its truest <laughs> form, but I'm loving your description of it. Um, so I just think, just before we move on, I've got a piano, just a little hop and a skip over from me just there. And it's difficult to translate this uh, actually one-to-one -one, but out without putting a little bit of music out there to start with. But I have a feeling that you have the most mellifluous singing voice, Vivian. Would I be right in saying that? Oh, my <laughs> the God. Me? The look of horror on your face, Vivian. Oh, my God. But, <laughs> but in two or three notes, when you think of Bong, what does that sound like to you? And could you could you la that or just sing me a couple of notes? And I'm going to translate it on the piano. Maybe I can sing like just the beginning of one of the songs that I think encapsulates Bong really well that's featured in our podcast. That would be absolutely awesome. Vivian, I'm at the piano. Oh, my God. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. My heart is like okay, beating so out of my chest right now. <laughs> so what have you got? What have you got for us? Okay, let's see. 
Oh my god. Okay. I'm getting stage fright. Okay, let me see if I can I can remember this. Ah, I know what you like, boy. Yeah, that was gorgeous. That was lovely. Okay. So we're kind of Oh wow. So how does it go on, Vivian? How does um, the song go on? It goes uh, I know what you like, boy. Uh, uh, cause I, 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 uh, and then it goes. That's, a, that's enough. You, you have a gorgeous voice. Okay. <laughs> you have a gorgeous voice. So, there's so many different ways to do that. You could go, which isn't, Ooh. which isn't this kind of. in that but that's not where we are so i want to get to the heart of would it be quite a simple harmonic progression da, da. would it literally be there da, 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 da. or would it da, da. kind of more yeah it would be more dreamy and would the rhythm what would the rhythm be like if you were to, to kind of what would that be like oh my god this sounds amazing that or was that too American? Oh my god that was so good! You know what's really really so great about that is like it's so emotive in exactly the way that Korean drama OSTs are and I feel like that ballady like dreamy longing sense that's exactly yeah. it. Oh, oh, I'm oh so that was so beautiful! <laughs> so tell us about your own journey with this music. When did you first start listening to K-pop Vivian? I grew up with K-pop really as sort of the music that was woven into the backdrop of my life. I grew up in Koreatown in Los Angeles, and you kind of couldn't go anywhere without hearing Korean music, like playing over the speakers at the grocery store or at the video store. And so it was just part of my daily life. And the thing for me was that when I was growing up, K-pop wasn't considered cool. So I actually grew up hiding the fact that I was listening to K-pop and enjoying Korean artists and groups because at that point in my life, like all I wanted to be was be perceived as being American, not Korean American. And part of that meant like putting up this facade that I was just listening to like cool American alternative rock music and, and indie music and things like that. So I have this sort of complicated relationship where mm. I really didn't want anyone to know that I had anything to do with K-pop. And then all of a sudden after college, the music starts taking off. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, BTS is everywhere. And suddenly like people all over the world know what K-pop is and are like legitimate fans of it, you know? And so seeing that change was like so, so surprising. So for me, K-pop sort of represents a lot of different feelings I have about my own like cultural identity and the journey I went on to kind of embrace my own Korean-American-ness. 
Mm. I think many of us, you know, second generation have experienced similar things. And that's quite normal and to be expected in many ways. So K-pop to you now represents a new source of pride, not just pride in the music, but pride in your heritage. What else does it represent? Does it represent this kind of broader sort of mosaic of, of your identity and the way it's connected to your sense of being an American, but also born of Korean heritage as well? Definitely, definitely. Before I started working on my podcast, K-pop Dreaming, I had no sense of like the history behind K-pop or anything like that. But once I started to dig in and really see how the music came to be, and I, I saw that the historical forces and events that shaped the music and allowed it to become what it was, they were the same exact things that shaped my own family history. Right. Like the same things that led to my grandparents immigrating from Korea to Los Angeles, the same things that allowed my dad and my mom to meet in South Korea, like all of these things made me realize, like, I have a shared history with the music and this sense that pop culture carries our shared history. Right. Like pop culture doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's a result mm. of all the other things that are going around it, all the like giant geopolitical forces and movements. And yeah, like I think seeing that direct connection allowed me to get a sense of my own family history that I had never known before because, you know, as children of immigrants, a lot of times like we don't get our family stories because whatever happened before the move was painful um, or difficult. And so yeah. I got to hear so many stories from my my grandma and my mom that I had never heard before. So you're totally right where K-pop represents like so, so much more for me. And so the music then is helping to do so many things, but it's to mobilize a sense of pride around the world as well and a sense of modern career. And outside of the sort of musical realm, what does that look like? I think the idea of Korean pride or KP, as a lot of kids in K-Town used to refer to it in nice, the 90s and nice. 2000s, the people of South Korea are so resilient and they've experienced so much throughout modern history, right? With like mm. colonization and occupation and then war and then having like this foreign entity of the U.S., government essentially establishing a military headquarters there and then like experiencing dictatorship and then just getting democracy from like the 1980s. Like Korea has been through a lot. Mm. And I think the South Koreans like really have prided themselves on being a very resilient group of people. And so that identity is sort of like woven throughout a lot of Korean media. And so now that we're seeing this K-wave, right, Hallyu, this yeah. like overtaking of Korean dramas and movies and music and beauty and fashion and food, the sense of pride is definitely surging. And when and why did K-pop really start to explode globally then? I think, you know, there are a lot of K-pop scholars, like literal academics who have written a lot about this. From my understanding, I think it was a combination of the internet, right? You have the rise mm. of YouTube in the 2010s and all of a sudden people from all around the world can access this music and music videos in particular that they've never been able to before. So that leads to the success of like Gangnam Style, right? By Psy mm. in 2012. And then a few years later you have the rise of social media and all of a sudden fans can access more 
of their favorite artists and groups, right? You get to see a lot more behind the scenes. You get the sense of ownership, like you can influence your favorite group's career through things like Twitter polls and things like that. So I, I think it really was the rise of the internet and social media that allowed for this like crazy, crazy boom that happened around 2016, 2017. And on your podcast, you talk about the role of the Korean diaspora in shaping and growing K-pop globally. Can you talk about that influence specifically? Yeah. So in the podcast, we kind of focus on Korean Americans in Los Angeles and from Los Angeles because yeah. in the 1980s and 90s, you know, you had the rise of hip hop in the States and then hip hop spread globally in the 90s. And while South Koreans were getting some like hip hop exposure, the direct exposure really came from Korean Americans from LA or New York who went over to South Korea and really brought that culture themselves and were showing off this is what's fashionable, this is cool, like we're wearing dickies, we're wearing baggy pants, and this is how we're styling our hair. And and so the South Korean music industry got direct access to 90s LA hip hop culture through Korean Americans. Ah, interesting. So there are criticisms of the genre, I think, in terms of it being perceived by some as being quite shallow and manufactured in one sense. How do you respond to those criticisms uh, in a way that particularly the young stars are developed within the belly or the bosom of that machinery, as you've described it earlier? I think if you look at any industry in the world, there's always going to be a dark side. And that dark side can be really, really dark sometimes, you know, and South Korea and K-pop, it's had its own fair share of scandals. And there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we don't see. Um, but I think you'll kind of see that dark side existing in any music industry anywhere, right? Like It's bad everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like because we're human, right? And anytime yeah. you have like a system created by humans, consisting of humans, there's going to be darkness because we all have darkness inside of us. Um, <laughs> I think for me, for me, it's sort of hard to talk about um, just because there is so much. And I think so much of it is like culturally specific and nuanced like the dieting culture, the plastic surgery, right? Like the emphasis on appearance and needing to look perfect, like bleaching and whitewashing the skin. All of those things are very real. People being overworked, taken advantage of, all of that is real. But again, you know, you look at any like biopics of American music stars from any decade and you're going to see the same things, exploitation and... Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. it's like complicated, right? It definitely exists for sure. But at the same time, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know how we're supposed to reconcile like that very human part of it with like the music, right? Enjoying the music. Like, are you allowed to enjoy art and separate sort of the art from the artist? Like, I think it just leads to bigger conversations that... Now that is a, that's a whole new question, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think certainly what I see is just on one level... I love to celebrate K-pop and I, I'm also fascinated by that whole world. But I also love the fact that it's not just the K-pop and the pop side. We're seeing the rise of K-classical as well, hugely. Mm. And 
you know, South Korea is being recognised as this cultural force, this exporter of cultural excellence, artistic excellence, not just in popular music, but across the board. And I think that's particularly important in just putting a pin in the map and saying this place matters for so many different reasons. Now, obviously, we have one phenomenon in K-pop is the fandom, which is just next level. I mean, I wish I had fans like that. And the culture of fandom in K-pop is fascinating in of itself. I just wonder whether you can talk to us and speak to the influence that it plays, where that devotion, that level of devotion stems from, and just how important they are in mobilizing the K-pop narrative around the world. Yeah, the fandom is definitely such a huge part of the K-pop industry. These groups would not be as big as they are without the fans. It's hard to say for me, like, why K-pop has attracted so many intense, like, devoted, loyal fans who will really take action, you know, not just in purchasing the music, but in also, like, purchasing merch and album sales and being, like, very, very invested in the personal lives of their favorite artists and groups and really wishing for their well-being, One thing that I think is interesting, though, is that this intense sort of like fan devotion has always been a part of K-pop from the beginning of the industry with the first ever boy band, H.O.T., in the 90s. Even from back then, H.O.T. fans were known to be super dedicated and loyal. And there's just something about the quality of fans in South Korea in general, I think, have been sort of intense and like next level compared to say like fans in America or Britain. Nowadays, if you go to a concert, right, you'll see everybody's holding up a light stick and each group has like a particular light stick that they sell. Before light sticks though, in the 90s, fans had taken it upon themselves like fan clubs to assign each group a color and the fans would dress up with like ponchos in that color and they would all bring balloons and wave balloons at the concert so let's say you have like a taping of a tv show right a variety show or a music show and different groups come on if you look in the audience you'll see different sections marked off by different colors and it's fans who have organized themselves into different sections waving these different colored (laughs) balloons and so there's always been this level of organization and this go get them type of proactive Mm. fan energy that's been associated with K-pop from the very beginning. And I think now you just see that to the nth degree with the internet and social media. But there really is a sense of ownership on the part of the fans. And I think the K-pop industry has sort of cultivated that and helped to encourage that as well. Because, you know, from the business side, they know that that translates to engagement and dollars. The thing that I think is also unique about the K-pop fandom is it's very inclusive in a way that I don't know if you see in a lot of other genres because of this choreography and the costuming and the visual element of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of like if you go to Comic-Con and you see somebody who's dressed up in your favorite superhero's outfit, like you automatically have a connection with that person or you go to like Anime Expo, you know that you're a fan of the same thing by the way you're dressed. With K-pop, you have this really fun thing where if a K-pop song is playing, 
all of a sudden you can have an organic flash mob because everybody who's a fan will know the same choreography. And all of a sudden you guys are doing the same synchronized dance together. And I think there's something really magical and nice about that kind of sense of community. 100%. It's, you know, it's genius marketing as well, but it's organic. That's the thing. It's like grown from the fans, owned by the fans, and it just all feeds into the the phenomenon that we see around the world. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like Taylor Swift fans, the way that they'll look for clues and Easter eggs and all the lyrics and see like this song is referencing this and this melody ties to this song. That yeah. is happening times a thousand on the K-pop side where it really is like the Marvel Cinematic Universe where there's so many references and Easter eggs <laughs> and all this lore that you can dig into, but it's like real people. One thing that's always struck me about K-pop music at its finest is just the level of musicianship on display. And as a classical musician myself, just listening to the harmonic structures and just the truth of it all. The fact is just so undeniable on a musical level. And I feel that that often doesn't get enough credit, just the production and the artistry and the beauty of it. Be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't know if you would agree, but I think a lot of people consider K-pop songs to structurally be a little bit more complex than Western pop music. There's a little bit more going mm -hmm. on and... American pop music in particular is very repetitive and that's on purpose to make the tune as simple and catchy as possible. But K-pop typically, if you listen to the song, there's at least like one part of the song, like a bridge or a breakdown or a hook that kind of veers from the rest of the song and then it kind of comes back. There's always some sort of surprising element. So I think, yeah, structurally there's a lot going on, but K-pop will also tap the highest talent in terms of producing, songwriting, composing. Mm. It's not all done in-house. And there's something called song camps where these entertainment companies will host a bunch of different songwriters and composers and producers to kind of stay at their headquarters, right? They'll like put them up in a hotel and everybody will show up to the SM building or the YG building every day. And these producers and songwriters will get paired together sort of in like random combinations or the execs, the music execs will like pair certain people together, send them off to mm. the studio to work for a day, right? So they'll be like sessioning mm. together. And then at the end of the day, everybody comes back and plays the tracks they worked on. And if the execs hear something that they think it would be a good fit for one of their groups, then they'll buy the song yep. and then take it, give it a Korean lyricist who then like translate their lyrics or write new ones. And then that's its own process. So yeah, entertainment companies are seeking like the top talent, I think, in the like top every musical talent. Yeah. Like when yeah. it comes to the session musicians, the producers, like everybody, they want the best of the best. And then they give it to their artists who are obviously trained at such a high level because they've auditioned as like teenagers or even, you know, yep. middle schoolers and then had five to ten years of musical training. So I think that level of excellence is definitely purposeful and like something they strive for, for sure. Here's the thing. In terms of proprietorially, can K-pop only be done by South Korean musicians in order to be authentic K-pop? 
Is it a genre that in order to be authentic needs to be born of South Korean heritage in that sense? And if it's not, like, is, it, is it not then K-pop? Yeah. Um, it's, a big, it's a big question though, It's a really it? big question, but I think it's, it's really interesting. I think I have like two things I want to touch on. The first is that the question you're asking, I think a lot of people are asking that same question because the lines are getting blurred. And because, you know, you have the creator of BTS essentially saying like, K-pop is too limiting of a term now. The K is too limiting for the genre, especially because a lot of these songs are coming out completely in English or in other languages, and they are specifically international-facing. But yeah, at the same time, you have groups like XG, which is a group that was formed by a Japanese entertainment company, and they sort of took the K-pop formula and created their own group. But XG feels and sounds like K-pop, and they were put together under this similar kind of like idol trainee system, Mm. and they have similar emphasis on like visuals and choreography. And at the same time, there's this big convention that happens in LA every year called KCON. I think it's all over the world now in like New York and Tokyo and things like that. But there's KCON, which is a celebration of all things Korean culture with a big emphasis on K-pop. And one of the big things about KCON is there's a series of concerts every night. And XG, this group that was like specifically not created in Korea, Mm. performed at KCON. And so even though they don't necessarily ascribe to like the K-pop genre label themselves at the same time they're being enveloped and included in this big convention that is Mm. yeah that is like built around k-pop so i think the lines are definitely blurred and i think people are asking the same exact question which is like Mm. what is k-pop and it's really really hard to answer like i definitely don't have an answer but to what you were saying about how race and music have always been connected and intertwined Mm. There's one episode of our podcast called Moon Knight where we sort of see how K-pop got its origins in R&B and hip-hop and New Jack Swing. And it all sort of originates at this one underground hip-hop club in Seoul called Moon Knight. But the thing about Moon Knight is that it was actually a club meant for African-American GIs who were stationed in South Korea in this neighborhood that was right next to the U.S. military headquarters, right? And so... This club that was specifically created for black soldiers from the States to be comfortable and listen to their own music and dance. Korean locals who were interested in hip hop started showing up and started immersing themselves in the culture and the dance, but also like literally learned dance moves from those soldiers from the States. So this exchange of culture was happening really, really like with face-to-face interactions with people from a different race. And and so literally K-pop got its start and the roots of hip-hop and rap, like it directly came from Black American soldiers. It came from Black America. And I think that's something that not a lot of K-pop fans now know about. And when we're talking about things like cultural appropriation and the role of mm. hip-hop in, in South Korean music, I think it's kind of important to see exactly what you're talking about of like race and music have been connected from the very beginning. And it's the exact same with the origins of K-pop. Amazing. 
Absolutely amazing. So after that whistle stop tour, I would love you to tell me where listeners should start on their K-pop journey. So what acts should they start with? What acts should I start with? Okay, I think someone who is very, very accessible and just at the height of popularity right now is Jungkook. He is a member of BTS, right? The biggest K-pop group in the world. The group is sort of like taking a break as the members are doing their military service. And Jungkook, he's branched out with a solo career. And his song Seven was like the song of the summer last year. And then you have his song right now that's dominating um, the charts in TikTok, which is Standing Next to You. And I think these two songs, if you listen to the difference between them, it kind of gives you a good idea of how wide of a range K-pop can be, like even with from the same artist, because Seven is like very poppy, very fast-paced, upbeat dance track. And then Standing Next to You is like super funky and it's ha- it has this really funky bass line. People are comparing it to like Warren G's Regulate or I Love You More by Renee and Angela. And there are all these like really great references. And it's just like a really super funky song where you're like actually hearing the bass yeah. line and, and it's really great. But they're also produced by the same duo, Andrew Watt and Circuit, who like they produce both these songs, but they sound incredibly different, which I think is really fun. And they've produced stuff for like Post Malone, Katy Perry, Justin Bieber, everybody. And then, okay, so that's Jungkook. And then I'm going to recommend my favorite girl group right now, which is New Jeans. And I think New Jeans in particular, their music really, really has that sense of bong, of the pining lyrics and melodies, plus the like upbeat, fast paced, like happy tempo. I'm smiling smugly because I know what bong is now. So I'm yeah. kind of, yeah, I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one more for us, maybe? Or. Ooh, okay. One more. One of the songs that dominated TikTok last year was this song called Cupid by 5050. And I think that one is a good example of a song that a lot of people may have heard and not made the connection that it's actually K pop. So that one is just a fun of like, you've probably heard the song before and you might not have known it was actually K-pop. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Vivian Yoon, thank you so much for your time. Now, I'm not going to let you go, though, before telling me what Vivian Yoon fans can expect from you next. Tell us about the podcast. Tell us about what we can expect from you. Yeah, the podcast is called K-pop Dreaming. It is a limited series that, you know, tracks the rise and history of K-pop. It's technically season two of a show called California Love. So type in K-pop Dreaming and California Love, you'll find it. As for me, I'm pivoting back to screenwriting. So hopefully you'll see me in that space. Awesome. Vivian, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. I could um, I could literally just sit here all night and just listen to you talk about this subject. Absolutely fascinating. Vivian Yoon, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Start Here, which is brought to you by the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. If you enjoyed our interview, subscribe now to get more episodes direct to your feed. Got a genre you want us to unpack? Why not follow ABRSM on Twitter, TikTok or Instagram and tell us 
what we should get into next. See you next time. The team at ABRSM is Eleanor Hampton, Gemma Ralston, Rowena Taylor and me, Alexis French, ABRSM's Artistic Director. The Creative Director at Chalk and Blade is Ruth Barnes. The producer was Emily Wally and the series was mixed by Nathan De Silva. The theme music is Vida Viva Amor by Alexis French, courtesy of Universal Music Publishing Group and Sony Music Entertainment. Additional music courtesy of Universal Production Music. <laughs>